a trip at the end of the year that was just fun. Uh, that had started in September of the previous year, and it was an involved process. And so by the end of the year, I took a busload of kids from Hobbs, New Mexico, into the Metroplex area of Texas. And uh, on the way back, we stopped in Abilene, Texas, because I knew that there was a paintball course there. Now, this was in the early days of the paintball movement, and I always wanted to do it, and I wanted our kids to do it, and I had some kids I wanted to shoot. (laughs) And so, a bus full of uh, one other man, a couple of lady sponsors, some of the kids didn't want to do paintball because it was a little bit too aggressive for them, so they wanted to go shopping, and like that's less aggressive. And um, so, about half, maybe three quarters of the kids that we had went to play paintball with us. As the course referee began to lay out for us the various games that we could play and the ones that he thought we should play, um, this smart aleck other adult sponsor that we had uttered these words. Mark and I will take on all of you. (laughs) Now, what I wanted to do was turn and shoot him. That's what I really wanted to do. Um, But it was too late because, you know, those high school kids, they were all over that, right? And so uh, the guy explained the rules of the game, and then he said, okay, here's the field that you have, and it was marked off pretty well, but it was basically like going out to some of your land probably and playing up in the trees and... um, and uh, so as we're walking down, just me and this other guy, his name was Dale, he said, uh, so what do you think? I said, man, what are you doing? These kids, you don't even understand how these kids are going to go off on us. He said, you don't understand. He said, I fought in Vietnam. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about right there. I do not mind telling you, I thought to myself, this is going to be awesome. And for the next three hours, Dale and I cleaned house. (laughs) Life is good when you win. (laughs) All right, so let me twist your thinking a little bit more now. I want you to think in terms of tactics. If you've been here much at all, I've been here four and a half years now. Those of you who have been here very long at all would have heard me say multiple times and quote this verse multiple times. And Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10 says, the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come, he said, to give you life. But he didn't leave it there. He put a qualifier on that life. Do you remember what it is? Okay, more abundant. Let me put that in 21st century English for you. I have come that you may have life that will blow your mind. How do you get that life? Maybe I could put it a little more in an aggressive in-your-face question. I don't want to do that, but if I wanted to do that, I would say, are you experiencing that kind of life today? I, I think that one of the things that happens for us is especially in our slice of Christian life, our denominational emphasis, 
We often so emphasize the entry into that life that we kind of get into the kingdom of God. We receive life as a gift from Jesus Christ. It only comes through Jesus Christ. In that same passage in John 10, I think it is, Jesus says, I am the door. Nobody gets in except through me. And so we so emphasize that, that, and we might dumb that down a little bit to say we emphasize getting people their fire insurance to stay out of hell. But in the emphasis of that, we often make it acceptable for Christian people to feel like the next step is to build a tent just inside the gate and live out their days there. In this little stretch that we're about to encounter in James's letter, James gives us in four verses 10 different um, directives, commands even, the way they're written, that are designed to help us with tactical Christian living. I, I want us to look at these together today. And actually what I want to do as we start into this is, is kind of back up a little bit. And I'll do that here in just a second. But as we do that, I, I want you to wear this as best you can, all right? James has been really hard on us for several weeks as we've worked our way through some of this. I'm going to refresh your memory with just how hard he's been on us. Chapter 4, James's letter beginning in verse 1. James gets in their face and in our faces when he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he, that is God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And with those verses, James is laying out his case for them that their divisions and those things that separate them in their own daily church and individual Christian lives are driven by their selfishness. And he says that that has no place with God. But we come to our text for the day, which is verse 7. And I start with all of that background because James picks up all of that background in verse 7 with that word we translate as therefore. Submit yourselves therefore to God based on what we've just seen and that tendency towards individualism and that tendency toward doing our own thing that causes divisions in the body of Christ. The answer to that, he says, is to submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And what I want you to get now is from verse 7 through verse 10, 10 different directives. Back to verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And in those handful of verses, James directs us towards tactical Christian living in order to experience the fullness of what Jesus Christ offers. What I'm going to ask you to do today is to go deep. As we get towards the back half of this message, I hope that I challenge you beyond the surface of your Christian life. If I could just somehow nudge you, or the Holy Spirit use me to push you beyond the entrance to the kingdom of God into the depths of what it means to be a child of God, this day would be a great day for a lot of us. Yesterday I pushed out into social media the basic question now, I will say that I said I don't want anybody to answer that. Now, some of you didn't get that message, but uh, uh, I wanted you to answer it to yourself. The reason I wanted you to answer it to yourself and not put it on Facebook is because I didn't want to have to make you think that I was attacking what you thought because my sermon was already in the can, so to speak, by that time. And you'll throw it in the can when it's all said and done, maybe. Here's the question. What causes you to run to God? So here's what James does. In the first part of verse 7, he builds this argument, if you will. I already said that therefore that's in verse 7 pushes us back into this fuller discussion that he's given about division and selfishness and all of those kind of things. But, But he throws this command out to us that is going to drive the rest of the of this discussion. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 10 and compare it to the first part of verse 7, it's the same directive. It's just said two different ways. The same basic point. And with that, James is using a first century rhetorical device called an inclusio, which basically means when you say one thing on the front and the same thing on the back, everything in between is designed to fit those two statements. This is a huge point of reference for him. So what does it look like to submit yourselves? Now usually, this is kind of a point for clarification for us, I think, because in 21st century English, uh, we might say some things that we find being translated out of 1st century Greek that have the same word but maybe different meanings. And typically when we use the word submit... Uh, we kind of mean surrender. The idea behind that word is that there is the end of a struggle. I, I was a youth minister back in the day to go back to Hobbs, New Mexico. I was a youth minister back before liability were, concerns were big in youth ministry. And now we have to make sure that, you know, there's no, we just, we almost have to put padding on the walls of the youth room to make sure our kids don't hurt themselves because there's a lawsuit attached to everything, seems like, these days. But back when I was a youth minister, long time ago, we didn't worry too much about liability issues. Now, that didn't mean that I wasn't worried about my job, but I, so here's, here's why I say that. 
Um, one day, I, I happened to be, now on a typical Wednesday night in that church, we had probably an uh, average of 100 teenagers and 30 adults. So in a small, relatively small area, we had a lot of people in there. Um, and I, I was glad to have 30 adults because you put 100 teenagers in a room, it's hard to figure out what's going on. And so I, I heard this thing going on between a high school boy and one of our adult workers. Now, the reason I heard this was, first of all, it was charged. The, the, uh, the level of interchange there was charged. Uh, and the second one was because I recognized the adult voice. It was my brother. Now, here's a thing you need to know about my brother. He's psycho. Okay, uh, he's been psycho all of my life and maybe even before he was born psycho. He, he's got a full dose of psycho. But here's the problem with that for us people, especially me as his little brother. Um, he became a trained psycho. My senior year in high school, I believe it was, my brother was the Texas heavyweight judo champion. And what that means is he practiced on me at home. Um, and he was obviously good at what he did. Now, since then, he's gone on, and I don't think it's karate per se, but he's, he's got a black belt in one of the martial arts. He's a trained psycho. He knows how to hurt you before you know you're hurt. And so we flash into that youth room on that night, and I hear this exchange going on. And I look over and I see my brother's face and I flash back to the time that I was a kid. And when I would see that look on his face, I would find another room to get to. And this kid just keeps pushing his buttons and keeps punching him in a direction that this kid, if he had only known what he was doing, he'd have never done it. And finally, my brother said, I'm going to tell you one more time, stop it which means sick them to a high school kid. And that kid said one thing, and before it got all the way out of his mouth like that, my brother had him on the ground in a submission hold, and he was pulling the kid's jacket this way across his chest. And I heard my brother say this to the kid, every breath gets just a little shorter doesn't it? Right, so as a youth minister there, I was glad I wasn't the one on the floor that time. So the kid was smart enough at that point to reach up onto my brother's arm and do this. You know what that means? <laughs> now that's submission language called tapping out. Right? In other words, the kid no longer had the capacity to speak. And so before he passed out, he tapped out. Now, that's how we think of submission most of the time. In our 21st century use of the word, we think it's a surrender that all of a sudden now I'm at the end of my will. There's nothing else I can do. So I submit, I surrender to the greater power. Now, I will tell you, 
that I'm going to use some nuances here today, and it's important that you stay with me to get the nuances, right? Because there is a reality that if you're going to come to Christ in the first place, you can't even be saved if you don't submit. Scripture says every knee will bow to, to the glory of God regarding who Jesus Christ is. You can't even be saved without submitting yourself to Christ. But there's also that element that, that I want to say to people. I, you know, I regularly I talk to people and they are toasting themselves out in life. I did that for a long time. I lived that life. And the only thing that you can do when you have so drilled yourself into the ground because you're going to do it your way and you're going to do it according to your standards, the only thing you can do is submit to Christ. That's the beginning of help for you. So there is an idea where this is right, this whole idea of tapping out, if you will, and that submission of my will. The problem with that for this is that's not the word James uses here. That's not the way he uses this here. Maybe the best way for me to help us get the, the flavor of the term that he uses is to think of a professional athlete who has been playing for one team and management decides, or maybe he's a free agent, and so he leaves one team and he goes to another team. This is not a passive move. There is a decision that's made, but the decision itself essentially says, while I was playing to help this team win, now I'm going to go over here and play to help this team win. It's not a tapping out. It is a change of allegiance. That's this word picture here. And so what we find is this idea that James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God based on all of the problems of self-rule and the division that it creates and that's unwise living going back into chapter 3, verse 13 and following. James says, the answer for you, you want to begin tactical Christian living, the first step is to switch your allegiances. It is not fighting for self anymore, but it is fighting. We'll go back to the picture that I tried to paint earlier relative to how we, as Christians, we, you know, we kind of get into eternal life. We, we go through the door. John 10, Jesus himself says, I am the gate. I am the gatekeeper. I, I, I am the one. There is no way to get to God except through me. That life that I promise you, you can only get through me. I am the way. But for us to go through him, into his life, and then immediately pitch our tent and never move from that violates the rest of what he says in verse 10 of John chapter 10. So what happens with many Christian people? Well, I say it this way. You drive through the countryside and you see a bunch of livestock out in the field, what are they doing? Nothing. They're not doing anything. Now, they might be eating or sleeping. I know it's impossible to do nothing. I know all of that you know, argument. But you understand what I mean. They're not doing anything. They're just waiting to die so you can eat. How many Christian people do you know 
who are exactly that. They got their fire insurance, they're going to stay out of hell, but there's no life there. They're just hanging out. It's no accident that Jesus called us sheep. Do you think that's what we're created for? Just to kind of sneak into the kingdom of God and then not have anything beyond salvation? Is that you, you think that's the life that Jesus was talking about in John 10? I don't think so. And unfortunately, so many Christian people get hammered and lose heart because they passively walk through life. They surrendered, they submitted their will in order to be saved, but they got out of the fight. So James now turns the attention and he begins to give these tactical directives on how to get to that point of living that Jesus promised. And as we find verse 7, verse 8, there is this interplay. There's these contrasts that are drawn. There's two sets of contrasts. First of all, in verse 7, resist the devil. Secondly, in verse, or the, the other contrast to that one is in verse 8, draw near to God. So resist the devil, by contrast, draw near to God. The second contrast is what happens when you do that, resist the devil, and so then he will flee from you. Uh, or the other contrast is, and God will draw near to you. And James is very strategic in the way he lays this out. And so these first steps, I should tell you, there is a Greek word here that's not even translated in most of our English translations. And the reason for that is because the Greek word there signals to us that James now shifts the argument. The call is to submit to God, but then everything that comes after that until we get to verse 10 talks about how to pull that off. So you submit to God. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, you resist the devil and you draw near to God. So now let's go to the deeper part of it because I want to pull on this one phrase in verse 8, actually, where he says, draw near to God. What does that mean, really? What does that look like for us practically? There are three levels, three different elements of this, I think. I want you to know that these are nuanced. I've already tried to tell you that. So today's a good day to listen with both ears. But if we'll get this, these are transformational truths for the Christian life. Some of us draw near to God strictly on an emotional level. Now, I have been accused. Uh, I just should know I'm quite comfortable with the accusation. But I've been accused a long times of being of just not really liking emotions or not being an emotional guy. You know what? I'm good with that. Okay? If you want to be emotional, that's your business. I'd like to talk you out of it a little bit today. But I know people are put together differently. We're all cut out the same. Some of us are glued together different ways. But this idea of emotional or coming from a feeling level uh, essentially is this. That is, I draw near to God because he makes me feel good. Now, part of what happens there is, if we're not careful, the only time I draw near to God is when I don't feel good. That's the danger here. 
And I'm, I'm not going to argue. This is an element, and we've got to get this part of it right. But if we live in this part, in the sum total of our spiritual formation, that is our discipleship, our drawing near to Christ and living with him, if the sum total of that is emotionally driven, then we are bound to fail in growing deeper with God. I know that that's a challenging statement, especially for those of us who are a little more emotionally driven. So let me see if I can illustrate it a couple of ways, and then I'm going to give you a quote from, uh, from a guy I have a lot of respect for tied to this. My granddaughter, her name is Mackenzie. She's three years old. Um, on a regular basis, she comes to our house, and uh, she's old enough now for me to begin to see these patterns in which I see her daddy in her. Um, and part of that is this incredibly strong will, stubborn streak. Now, you know, she's not really had that with me too much. I don't know what the deal is with that. Maybe she's just a brilliant child. I don't know. But um, every time lately that she comes to our house, before she goes home, there is some kind of a showdown between her and her nanny sitting on the front row over here. Um. I love listening to that from another room. Okay, I can't be in the same room because I'd be laughing so hard. It would be a, a lesson lost on that little girl. But I want to take her into my arms and I want to pull her close and I want to say, Mackenzie, you will never win that battle with her. <laughs> Here's what Mackenzie does. Back to this whole emotional trigger for our spiritual formation. Invariably, when Mackenzie gets in trouble at our house, she says these words, I want my mommy. Her mommy's not there. If her mommy was there, her grandmother would not let her go to her nanny until they had settled whatever it was they were dealing with. But I say that because so many of us as Christian people limit our running to God. I'll come back and qualify that in a minute to those times when we need comfort. The sum total of our discipleship is relief with God. That is an emotionally based disciple. And while there is adequate grounds to say that's a piece of discipleship, it's not ever going to be adequate to say it's the sum total. As a matter of fact, Dallas Willard, I've quoted him before. I've encouraged you to read his stuff. Um, you got, part of what I want you to hear now is this guy's an incredible Christian author, thinker, uh, really focused in on spiritual formation stuff. But he was, if I remember correctly, he was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. Let that sink in. A philosophy professor in the center of the land of the fruits and nuts. I'm talking about philosophically speaking, of course. Who is Christian. So in other words, Willard's not one of those Christian authors who has an office in a church somewhere and never steps out into the real world. This guy lived it every day with some great minds in his classes philosophically 
Here's what he said about this idea of an emotional-based discipleship. He says, this area of feeling, I suspect, is the most likely place for defeat for those sincerely seeking to follow Christ today. That is a huge statement. Let me give you one more illustration of that before we move on to the next. Y'all know of Teresa's dog, whose name is Pixie. Just the name describes Pixie, okay? She's about this big. Her legs are about this long, and she runs the house. Now, here's the thing about Pixie. She's a rescue dog. She rescued Teresa, and, uh, uh, which is a true statement, right? I'm, that's okay, but um, Pixie is a part Chihuahua and part um, Yorkie, right? Um, and so... She, bless her heart, she will never jump onto a piece of furniture. It, she can't do it. It's impossible. So what we found with her through the years now is that when she gets good and ready, she will run up to either my chair or Teresa's chair and scratch on it because she can't jump up into our laps. That's her way of, I guess, saying, hey, I'd like to be up there with you. Whether that's what she's saying or not, that's what happens. So one of us reached down and picks her up, Right? And so we put her on our lap. Now, it's interesting that when the seasons change, she changes which one she wants to go to. And I think it's because in the wintertime, Teresa has a blanket there, and so she wants up in the blanket. And so, But summertime, she don't want anything to do with Teresa. Nothing to do with Teresa. She comes to me. It, it kills me. I hate that. Get away. Okay? Until recently, Teresa bought her a bed because every dog needs a bed. Now Pixie won't come to either of us. She just goes to her bed. You tell me that's not like most Christians. We go to God when we need him. We decide when that is. And when we get our good fill of whatever comfort level we need, then we go back about our business and do our thing. That is an emotionally based discipleship. By contrast to that, this one out of balance is just as bad as the other one out of balance. This is the one that is the force of will. This is that person who is intentional in following Jesus, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make up my mind. I'm going to do this. How are your New Year's resolutions going, by the way? Huh? Okay. Now, I know some of you are going, I don't make New Year's resolutions. And every time I ask people that, present company excluded, when I ask people that, why don't you make... You know what their answer is? Because I never keep them. Okay, so just admit you're weak. Okay? Those of us who have this intentionality, well, I'm going to do this. That's, that's that part, that humanistic side of discipleship. And so what we do then, how do we, when we decide, I'm going to draw near to God, how do we do that? Well, we decide I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to pray. Because somewhere, some preacher, some youth minister told me, I need to have a quiet time. I'm going to have a quiet time. So every morning, I'm going to get up 530, and I'm going to do that. And that lasts three, two or three days. And then we somehow have something else we're intending on doing that wins out. These people, if, if the sum total of your discipleship is just that force of will that says, I'm going to do this, um, 
chances are good you're going to lapse into folk Christianity. You're going to have a bunch of great little sayings that probably contain some truth, but they're not worth much more than the bumper sticker saying that they become. For instance, God is my co-pilot. I'm sure some really intentional person decided that sounded good. That's horrible theology. You can't even get saved if God is your co-pilot. So this person, the one who says, I will do this drawing near to God because I decide and I will do it. This person ends up being awfully dead in their spirit. I had a discussion one time with a coach. They were going to do a Fellowship of Christian Athletes event at the church I was pastoring at the time. So this baseball coach called me from a local high school and he said, hey, we want to do this. Uh, could we come, could I just come and walk through? And I said, sure. Pastors love it when a bunch of lost people come to our campus. It's our opportunity to, you know, anyway. So uh, in this case, Joey came over and he and I walked the premises and we talked about various things. And in the process of that, he was asking me about the church and he knew some of our kids who went to the school where he was a coach and uh, we had a really good youth ministry there. And uh, so he, he recognized some things going on and and he was from the going church in town. Uh, you know, it was one everybody knew about. They always knew the programs they were running. And, you know, they had people flocking over there. And Joey was a big shot at that church. And somewhere in the midst of it, in our discussion about what God was doing at our church, he just stopped and he said, you know, sometimes I look at our church and I think we're just a mile wide and an inch deep. My suspicion is that there's probably a lot of churches like that. Let me give you another suspicion. This church will become like that if we allow ourselves to be. One of my professors spoke into a situation almost exactly like that when he told a friend of mine, you know, some things that we do in church just don't feed the soul. And that's, that's the drawback of coming at discipleship strictly from a, I'm going to do it. You can't do it. Oh, you can do all of the little things. You can check all the little boxes. You can read your Bible every day for the rest of your life and still miss God. You can spend days upon days in your little prayer room checking your little prayer journals and never hear from God. You know, the most intentional people of Jesus' day were the Pharisees. and They missed God. Jesus said of them, uh, to, about them to his disciples, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, the intentional guys, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you can't even get into the kingdom of heaven. So the emotional or the intentional needs to give way to the spiritual. And I'll close with this. Musicians, you can go Easy for me to say. Musicians, come on up, and we'll begin the latter part of our service. But I want you to hear me as we move that direction. The spiritual part of that, that's where we respond to that deep ache within us for the presence of God. All of us are created with that hunger for relationship with God. That only comes through Jesus Christ. 
But that relationship gives way to fellowship with him. And an emotional, strictly emotional, or a strictly intentional kind of discipleship misses the heart. And so this drives us to fill the empty space of our lives. When this service is over, don't get in Teresa's way. She told me two days ago, I need to see my grandbabies. Now, I got to tell you, my grandbabies, I can take or leave them most days. Okay? I love them and all that stuff. I know they're in Conroe. If I need them, I'll get them. Okay? She's not that way. She, every once in a while, says to me, I need to see my grandbabies. You know what I know? When she says, I need to see my grandbabies, I promise you, I'm planning a trip to Conroe because either I'm going to, she's going. Right? You with me? How long has it, you've, has it been since you felt that about your fellowship with God? I'm going to do whatever it takes to get connected with God. I, I talked about running to him. One of the great comments I got on my website was, you can't run to God. You know what? The reality is you don't have to run to God because God is right there waiting for your heart to say, I need you. And so, from my vantage point, I want to take you into our nursery for a second. And a mother drops off a baby over there. And that baby, as soon as that mother starts walking off, just starts screaming and yelling and going off. We call that separation anxiety. The mama calls that relief Wouldn't it be awesome if every one of us so needed Jesus that we sensed the moment that there was a break in fellowship with him and it was separation anxiety for us? How is it with you? None of this matters if you're listening to this for somebody else. Draw near to God. Submit to him. And he'll draw near to you. Let's pray. Father, take this time. Use this invitation for your glory. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.